0: Good
1: morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to The Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski.
0: Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is political analyst Kristen Soltis-Anderson, who does So much that it's really hard to summarize it all in one intro, but I'm going to try my best. She's a Republican pollster and co-founder of the research and analytics firm Echelon Insights, a contributor at ABC News, a Washington Examiner columnist, a regular guest on shows like Morning Joe, Fox News Sunday, and Real Time with Bill Maher author of The Selfie Vote, Where Millennials Are Leading America and How Republicans Can Keep Up, and the co-host of The Pollsters, a bipartisan weekly podcast. Kristen Salt anderson welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You know, I'd like to start by talking about your book, The Selfie Vote, which was how I was actually introduced to your work. And, of course, the the book focuses on millennial voters, or at least, I guess you could say, potential voters, given how many millennials don't actually vote. So I was wondering, why did you decide to write a book about millennials, and what did you find out about them?
1: I decided to write a book about millennials because as someone who was in my mid-20s, uh, around the time of Barack Obama's election, um, I realized that I started noticing friends would ask me, Kristen, how can you be a Republican? You seem so nice and normal. Uh, and th- that that was distressing to me. You know, I I had... Upon sort of getting interested in politics, decided that I, I thought my views lined up most with the Republican Party about role of government and uh, personal responsibility and things like that. And so all of a sudden I noticed a lot of people that were my peers who had not cared about politics before. The good news was they were getting engaged, but the bad news was is they couldn't fathom why someone would join my party and when the exit polls came back, you know, of course, it showed Barack Obama won young voters by a two to one margin. So I wrote my master's thesis in grad school on, Uh, what had happened to sort of drive younger voters away from the GOP. And I found that an awful lot of people in my own party sort of think that it's normal to lose young voters by huge margins. They think, well, young people are always really progressive. And we'll win them when they get older and they, you know, reality sets in and they, they realize that they're paying too much in taxes or what have you. And a lot of the data that I found suggested that's not the that's not an accurate way to look at the world. So I I wrote the book because I was trying to sort of cry out to my party not to assume that all of these voters will one day decide to become Republicans, that we have to do the work now of persuading people why the things we believe are right, Um, because the the work will get harder and harder and harder to do after more and more elections pass and younger voters become even more uh, Democratic. So that's part of why I focused so much on my generation, uh, because my personal experience sort of had me concerned back in 2008. And then we've sort of continued as a party to not do what we need to do to win over uh, this generation.
0: So are are you saying then that you don't really think that it's just a case that millennials are different just because they're younger? And so uh, that, that attitude of, well, as they age, their political behavior is going to be more in line with the Republican Party. You don't really buy that.
1: N- not at all. Uh, just a few days ago, there was a very interesting thing that was put out by Pew Research Center where they've been looking at each of the generations and their partisan identification breakdown um, every year going back to about the year 2000. Now, for millennials, that chart doesn't start until around two, you know the mid 2000s because none of them were 18 yet at that point. Um, Some were just, you know, in elementary school. Uh, But they show that for other generations, you know, you have the baby boomers and you have the silent generation where they have gotten a little more conservative, a little more Republican over the last 15 years. But for Gen Xers um, who are now in their 40s, they have not gotten more Republican over the last 15 years. It's not as though Getting older, having more kids, buying homes, all of those things did not make the Gen X generation more conservative. And in fact, Gen Xers already in some ways kind of started off a bit more conservative to the extent that you had young people coming of age during the Reagan era. What happens when you come of age politically really places a strong imprint on the way you look at politics for the rest of your life so the chart for party identification for gen xers is remarkably stable and what should really concern republicans is that for millennials that chart has actually gotten more liberal democratic um, as we've gone on that as more and more people in the millennial generation enter the pool and begin voting Even as that oldest bucket of millennials has aged, entered their mid-30s, begun doing all of those things you do as adults that are supposed to make you more Republican, the generation is becoming even more liberal.
0: So do you think that has something to do with at least the conventional wisdom that says that millennials are just a more natural fit with uh, Democrats and that that they seem to like big urban areas, they have socially liberal views and so forth, and that it's just a lot easier for Democrats to uh, attract and keep millennial votes.
1: Well, there are a lot of things that make it easier for Democrats to reach out to millennials right now. So part of it are some of those things you identified. Uh, you know, Republicans do very well among married voters, but for younger voters today, they're putting off the decision to get married or choosing to opt out of the institution altogether. Um, Republicans do very well among voters who attend church regularly. But millennials, despite being just as likely to say they're people of faith and that they pray daily compared to people in older generations when they were young— Uh, They're less likely to go to church on Sunday. And so there are certain things that make people more likely to be Republicans that are just more absent in this generation. And you've also got the demographic advantages for Democrats. So as long as Democrats continue to perform extraordinarily well with African-American, Latino, and now Asian-American voters, which in their behavior are are behaving almost exactly like um, Latino voters in terms of their partisan breakdown, the millennial generation is very has very large concentrations of those voters. Uh, Mitt Romney and Donald Trump both won young white voters, um, but because of the incredible diversity of this generation, that's not enough to save those Republicans from losing the generation overall by you know twenty some points. So this is a there are a lot of things that make it very challenging for Republicans to to win over this generation and sort of mean you can't disentangle. Republican struggles with young voters from Republican struggles with secular voters or voters living in cities or voters who are not white. All of these challenges are interrelated. Right. So, I,
0: I mean, that there definitely is a lot of overlap there, but it seems to me that at least one party, the Democrats, have made uh, a lot of effort to reach out to minority voters, kind of a long-time natural constituency, but I, I don't see a whole lot of either party doing a ton of outreach to millennials. And according to uh, Pew Research Center, I mean millennials are pretty much equal with baby boomers in term of the in terms of the percentage of the electorate they are both around 31 percent, which seems to me to be potentially a huge wasted opportunity. And so I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts as to why there isn't more outreach to millennial voters from both parties well,
1: really millennials are a bit harder to reach um so it's just it's it's t- tactically harder for campaigns to nail them down uh in some cases they're you know still living at home with mom and dad or they're moving around a lot um maybe they're in college and so where they live during the year is not where they vote so there are a lot of factors that i think just lead a lot of campaigns and campaign consultants to say eh why bother they don't matter um and i think that's that's foolish It's certainly true that young voters and baby boomers make up uh, sort of equivalently large slices of the electorate, but millennials do underperform their potential. Um, older voters are, uh, you know, significantly more likely to actually turn out than younger voters are, in part because they've got a lifetime habit of having voted. They are more likely to know where their polling place is. They're more likely to have already been registered, to have it as a habitual behavior, whereas for young voters, it's oftentimes something new that they're doing or they've never done before. So it's it's partially a, a return on investment problem, but it's it's also because when campaign folks are thinking about return on investment, they're thinking about the next election. They're thinking about winning the votes to get to 50 percent plus one four months from now, five months from now. They're not thinking about the health of the party five, 10 years down the road. And so that's the big challenge, is that certainly millennials are a big piece of the puzzle. They made up you know, almost one out of every five votes, according to the exit polls, in the 2012 elections, um, similar proportions according to the exit polls this time around. Um, And so they, they make up a lot of votes, but I think the effort required per vote cast is considered to be much higher for millennials and so campaigns shy away, not really thinking about the fact that you have to win over these voters now because they will pay dividends in votes down the road. Someone who turns 18 on the eve of this last presidential election based on average life expectancy, will be voting until the presidential election of 2076. So this is a long time that people will have to be casting votes. and Winning them over to your side isn't just about winning their vote tomorrow. It's about winning that pool of votes that they will cast over the course of a lifetime.
0: Right. Yeah, you know, it kind of going into that idea of winning and, and kind of keeping those voters. It, it seems to me, I, I, uh, I'm I a college professor, and so I have a lot of experience with, with seeing uh, politically active millennials. But one thing I've noticed is, at least it seems to me in my classes, that a lot of them are much more deeply cynical than I remember even myself as, as a Gen Xer being when I came up. And so I'm wondering, has your research found that millennials are more cynical? And if so, does that present, do you think, some unique challenges in trying to get them to uh, develop sort of a stable party identification over time?
1: Well, for younger voters, uh, bear in mind, voters of all ages right now are feeling pretty cynical. If you ask people if they trust major institutions, the media, organized religion, government, political parties, the military, police, um, on almost all of these factors, trust in these institutions has dropped in recent years. But for younger voters, the difference is that they've never really come up in an era where you did trust those institutions. For them, it's not as though there was some time when, you know, everybody turned on the nightly news and you watched one anchor that everybody trusted and we all operated from a single set of facts I mean that's, that's not a, the world that mil, any millennials have ever grown up in. So for them, this distrust of institutions is the norm. And also bear in mind that they, for someone who's a younger voter, who let's say they turned uh, they graduated from college around the time of the financial crisis, the advice they were probably given throughout their life was to be responsible. You should go to college, take out those loans, get that degree, you know, get married, settle down, buy a home. Uh, get a steady job and then invest in the stock market. Those are the things you can do to do everything right. And you'll be fine if you do those things. And then they looked around and they saw their parents generation going through unprecedented levels of divorce. Um, They saw that the house next door to the one they grew up in got foreclosed on, or maybe mom and dad's 401k evaporated. And so, you know, all of a sudden, all of these things they were told to do as the responsible things stopped looking like such great Bets, and you know, for many of them who did go to college and take out those loans, they may have been struggling to complete that degree, or if they did, struggling to get a job that would pay off the loans that they'd taken out. So all of a sudden, all the stuff they were told you should trust in this, do in this, and you'll be fine—that a lot of that got shaken. And so that's why I think this generation is is more skeptical of the way things are and more eager to try something new.
0: Right. So, so you think then it's partly world events, and but it's also partly, it sounds like, at least a little bit, the nature of modern media as well.
1: A little bit. Well, and I think also, I think the idea that you'll have younger voters picking one party or the other and sticking with them, we certainly see growth in, you know, more young voters identify as Democrats than as Republicans. And if, depending on how you count independents, some polls really push people who say they're independent and say, well, tell me, do you lean one way or the other? You know, if you push people, then when they lean, you wind up with a very small sliver who are independent. But for a lot of young voters, I think identifying with any kind of label is uh, it's it's uh, it's anathema to them that, you know, and I've not just seen it with political partisan labels, but with labels like environmentalist or feminist. It's not that young voters don't believe in women's equality and it's not that they don't want to protect the environment. But these labels sometimes come with baggage uh, that they're not interested in having attached to them. And so that influences uh, their their affinity for big labels like partisan identification.
0: Right. So what are some issues that you think are, or you found are particular concern to millennials, particularly maybe issues that parties aren't paying enough attention to? So I guess what I'm saying is, what would you envision as a millennial-friendly policy agenda?
1: Well, I think millennials are, per, are very focused on uh, economic issues. For them, foreign policy really does fall to the back burner that generally they uh, want to see the, this kind of America first message of Donald Trump, oddly enough, actually reflects some of what I've seen from younger voters. Um, but a- although in Donald Trump's case, he wants to put America first, but also grow the size of the military, I've seen lots of polling suggesting millennials are, are not as eager to do that. Um, In terms of the quote unquote social issues, you have things like LGBT rights where younger voters are unequivocally in a place where they hold progressive views um, that are just sort of at odds with mainstream conservative thought. Um, But I think it's the economic issues uh, that are the heart of where uh, millennials focus in terms of policy. And I think first and foremost, younger voters are concerned about can they get a job? Um, If they're working hard, uh, can they get ahead? Can they begin making some of those commitments that older generations made, like buying homes and getting married and starting families? Um, These are things that millennials want to do but feel hamstrung by the state of the economy. And so the economy, of course, bleeds into other issues, right? Can they afford to purchase health care? Can they afford to uh, pay off their student loans? These things are all related. Um, but I think they, they, they all come down to these checkbook or p- pardon me, I shouldn't say checkbook when I'm talking about millennials, I should say pocketbook <laughs> type issues. Um, maybe even pocketbook's not the right type of word because I don't know anybody my age that refers to a pocketbook. <laughs> um, so I think those are the big issues. And I talk a lot in the selfie vote about ways that we can uh, take the things that government does and try to do them better and in a more fiscally responsible way um, that can hopefully hopefully, unleash productivity, unleash entrepreneurship, um, not by saying we're gonna scrap government, but by really thinking about the ways that many government institutions and regulations are outdated. They were made for an economy that doesn't exist anymore. They were made for a culture that doesn't exist anymore. How can we update the way that we look at things uh, to make it more suited to the challenges of our era? And so I try to point out ways that I think Republicans have plenty of opportunity to talk about this in an effective way. An example that I give is that uh, in the 2012 election, Barack Obama gave an interview Um, to MTV, where he was asked by uh, this MTV host, Sway Calloway, said, Mr. President, you know, what have you done to make it easier for young people to start a business, to become an entrepreneur, to try to be the next Mark Zuckerberg? And Obama's answer was great. He said, you know, I signed a bill that repealed the regulations that were preventing people from being able to crowdfund um, and, you know, so we, we, we passed a bill that let Kickstarter become a thing. And now that's how you can raise money for your business. And I thought that's a great answer, except it's an answer that comes from a bill that was passed out of the House by Republican votes, um, sponsored by Republican members. It had more opposition from Democrats, actually. Now, for the president, to his credit, he signed the bill. He can take credit for it all day long. But why was every Republican not out there on the campaign trail on college campuses talking about the Jobs Act? Mm -hmm. And so I think there are just a lot of missed opportunities where Republicans, even when we do things that we should be talking about to younger voters, just completely miss the boat.
0: So you you mentioned President Trump uh, before, and he seems to me not not the first person who would come to mind when I think of millennial focused leader. No, um, not
1: at all. <laughs>
0: so I'm wondering who do you see kind of looking forward in the Republican Party who you think might be that sort of millennial focused leader, uh, and then and then maybe also uh, if there's anyone on the on the Democratic side aside from I guess Bernie Sanders who seemed to really capture the uh, the imagination the attention of the kids.
1: Well, so, you know, I used to think that it let me back up a bit. If you had told me that the Republican Party would nominate a candidate who would use social media effectively, um, who would uh, be in touch with pop culture and who at the convention would, for instance, say nice things about the LGBT community. I would go like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Who, did we nominate John Kasich? Did we nominate Marco Rubio? Who who did we nominate? And yet here we have Donald Trump as the president. Um, you know, won the White House. Um, of course, in so many ways, Donald Trump is not at all the type of candidate. I think it, you, I couldn't have created a candidate in a lab more ill-suited to the task of winning younger voters back to the Republican Party. Um, But I think there's one thing about what Donald Trump does that is a valuable lesson for others to learn, and that's that when Donald Trump tweets something, do you doubt for a moment that that's just what popped into his head at that, at that moment, that that's what he he really thinks and feels, even if it's wrong? And so, you know, when I think of someone like Marco Rubio, who I for a long time thought he's going to be the type of guy who... Brings younger voters to the GOP because he's more willing to talk about, you know, things like the sharing economy and how that's good for young people and how we need to, you know, empower it and let's change the way we think about student loan debt. Let's let's reframe some of these uh, outdated ways that we look at the economy. You know, Rubio had that message, but I I don't know if he quite had the authenticity piece that you see from say, a Bernie Sanders or a Ron Paul. Neither Bernie Sanders nor Ron Paul is cool. Neither of them can give a well-thought-out interview to a TMZ reporter about hip-hop music the way that uh, Marco Rubio can. Um, But for both Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul, you believe that they believe the things that they are saying, even if they seem kind of like your cantankerous old grandfather. Um, And there is something to be said for that kind of authenticity and the way that younger voters are craving it. So, so
0: do you think then that younger voters are better at sniffing out fakes or they just demand more authenticity or some combination of the two, maybe?
1: I think they just demand to be – I think the old talking points and the old rhetoric uh, just doesn't work with them at all, that the sort of old way that politicians are used to talking just sort of falls flat. Um, And so it's this more informal, more, hey, I'm taking you seriously and I'm just here to have a conversation. I think that style is much more embraced. And you see corporate brands doing this as well, taking, you know, creating a social media presence where the brand has a voice that sounds like, like a person who wants to have a conversation with you instead of something that sounds very corporate or very formal. And I think that's sort of bled over into politics as well.
0: Right. Because at least from my view, aside from Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, I can't think of any nationally known political figure for either party who seems to have that sort of authenticity. I mean, a lot of folks talk about Elizabeth Warren, but she doesn't really seem that, at least in my view, have that. Is there, uh, is there anyone that you can think of that sort of seems to embody that?
1: Who's- no. So for the Republican side, you know, this past primary season, the thought was, well, gosh, we've got our A-team on the field. This This is the crop of folks that are you know, you've got a lot of, like, Gen X age candidates in this bucket. Maybe this will be the group that actually turns things around. And, uh, and then they all got defeated by Donald Trump. So, you know, we're sort of back at square one there. You do have, I think, you know, folks who are, uh, so in some cases, blue state Republican governors. You've got a Charlie Baker um, who's very popular in, in Massachusetts despite being a Republican You've got folks like Susana Martinez, a Republican governor, but in a blue state. Uh, So I think in some cases, some of these blue state Republican governors are the type of pragmatic that that could maybe work. Um, But we, we did think some of this headed into this last election, and those folks just weren't able to get nominated by this Republican party. Now, the best thing Republicans have going for them is the complete void of or the, the complete vacuum on the Democratic side for any of this. Uh, you have, on the Democratic side, there's there's a young leader that I've written about a lot. His name is Peter Buttigieg. He's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I think he's very impressive. I think he's he, as a Republican, he terrifies me uh, because I think he's really fantastic, and I think he's very uh, inspirational, got a great story. But he ran for DNC chair and didn't get any traction because the Democratic Party was still sort of locked in this proxy battle between you know, a member of Congress who's been around for a while uh, versus somebody who was a sort of establishment favorite who wound up prevailing. So the Democratic Party, I don't think, has grappled with the fact that they don't have a big bench, that they haven't been winning down ballot, um, and that there is this really big young leadership uh, vacuum going on. Uh, Fun fact, I was studying this the other day because I was trying to figure out, you know, the seniority charts in Congress and how many folks in Congress now were around even as recently as 2010 when the Affordable Care Act passed. And you've got uh, in the Democratic Party in Congress right now, something like 10% of their members have been around since before Bill Clinton was president. So Democrats have a lot of folks that have just, they're, they're ancient. They've been around for a long time. They've been hanging on. Um, and I think in some cases that has not created enough space and oxygen for new people to move up in their party, which is why Republicans still, despite uh, everything else, have been sort of given a reprieve that Democrats have not finally, once and for all, locked this generation down.
0: Right. You know, in, the, in addition to being an author and a political analyst, you're, you're also, of course, a pollster. And, uh, There are a lot of people, obviously, including, of course, President Trump, who seem to be really skeptical of polls these days. And so I'm wondering, do you think that that skepticism is is fair? And, And do you feel that polls are maybe a less reliable gauge of public opinion than they used to be?
1: I think polls are given, are not well understood by the public and by the media. And so they are used to do things they are not well suited to do. Campaign polling is unique in the entire world of polling and opinion research and market research because it's the only type of polling where there is a, 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 a accountability at the end. If you are a market research firm and you are doing a study for a brand and you come back and you say 60% of Americans like your brand – There is no independent way to verify if that's true or not. There's no way to to gauge how accurate that market research firm is. The only time we really do a poll to ask people their opinions and then have a moment in time where it is shown if that is accurate or inaccurate, it's campaign polling. So I think campaign polling gets the brunt of the criticism, despite the fact that, you know, it's actually only campaign polling that gets this, you know, verification at the end of the day. I think that polling nowadays is much harder to do. And that's part of why I started my company. Um, you know, I saw so much of the sort of traditional landline polling still being done without really an appetite or openness for trying new methods, um, and particularly really sort of experimental stuff back a few years ago, which was how do we look at social media as a supplement to what we do in polling? So I started my firm because I thought we shouldn't just be putting blind faith in any one measure of public opinion. We shouldn't just be calling a thousand people up on a landline phone during dinner and saying that that's going to work. So the idea that the polls are imperfect comes as no surprise to me. And the fact that we put so much faith in them, uh, I think, is is a problem. Um. But at the same time, I think people now say, you know, I even on election morning thought, oh my gosh, was this our Dewey defeats Truman moment? Was how bad was the polling? And in the end, when you counted up all of the votes in the national popular vote, you have Clinton winning by about two points, which is about where the Real Clear Politics average had the national popular vote going. Um, the the reason why the forecasts were so off is that a small handful of polls and a small handful of states just badly misjudged how much uh, the undecideds would break for Donald Trump. And that led to this snowball effect where you then have the forecasts that are ingesting those polls into their models, then making assumptions that, say, a state like Wisconsin is off the table or a state like Michigan is off the table. So it was a handful of, of polls that were off, fed into models that then sort of compounded those problems, that led to everybody being so surprised on election day. But you also had, again, those national polls that were pretty close. You had polls in states like Virginia and New Hampshire that were almost right on the money. And so the challenge for the polling industry, I think, is going to be that we don't no yet what were the factors that made the polls right in new hampshire but wrong in michigan what made them right in virginia but wrong in wisconsin what made them right in you know a state like uh i think colorado was one that wasn't too badly off um a place like new hampshire or pardon me north carolina and florida Um, you know, weren't too badly off. The polls showed that it was going to be pretty close there. Maybe a slim Clinton lead, but maybe not. Uh, And I think it's just that, you know, people didn't understand the way that these polls have margins of error, that if your poll shows Clinton winning a state by one, um, then it's perfectly reasonable that Trump would win by two. Um, And people punish polls much more if you say that it's going to go Clinton by one and then it winds up going Trump by one, than if you had said, ah, the state's going to go Trump by 10, and instead it goes Trump by 20, people don't punish polls when they get the uh, red versus blue question right, um, even if they're off on the margin by a huge amount. And because we had so many states that were so many close, this, so close this time around, I think that's also why you got uh, pollsters kind of getting a lot of grief for quote unquote missing it when actually the polls were were very close to what the actual results said it just the the red versus blue thing wasn't well understood by those who didn't understand margin of error
0: well it, it seems to me at least to a certain extent it's not not so much the polls themselves but how the media reports the polls and they never report the things. They never try to explain the margin of error and so forth. They just report kind of the top line number in the most dramatic way possible. And so uh, would you agree that the media deserves a, a fair amount of the blame for sort of exaggerating or not fully explaining the process?
1: Oh, sure. And, and it's easy for me as a pollster to direct blame other places. Sure. And then as somebody who is also a contributor at ABC News, I'm like, I'm partially part of the media, partially part of being a pollster. So I am just loathed all around right now, <laughs> um, not in industries that are very popular. But I do think it does frustrate me as a pollster. You know, I'll go and do segments um, on, you, you know, uh, various uh, topics. And, you know, a poll will come out from pollster A and it will say, ah, Trump is up by one. And then they'll say, well, but that's so different from this poll that came out from Pollster B three days ago that had Clinton up by four. Kristen, what has caused this Trump surge in the last three days? And, you know, nobody wants to listen to the well, actually, you're comparing apples and oranges because these are two different pollsters you're comparing. And also, I doubt that the electorate has really changed its mind by five points in just three days. So in part, this is a you know, you've got to understand margin of error like that's a boring segment. Nobody wants to hear that segment. And so when you know, these segments always get sort of teed up as, look, Trump he's up 2 points more in this poll than he was a week ago. Why is he surging? And so to you know as as you framed it they always sort of portray the polls in the most exciting way possible. It's 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 portrayed like it's a sporting event and oh this is now Trump has just scored another touchdown or something like that. And it winds up meaning that there's this obsessive focus on the horse race. While we're not focusing on the other questions in the questionnaire that I think give us the really interesting clues about where an election might go. So you could find out that voters really wanted enormous wrecking ball style change or that their number one issues were economy and terrorism. And those were the two issues where Donald Trump held the biggest lead over Hillary Clinton, or trailed the least against Hillary Clinton, depending on the issue. So there were other hints and clues in the polls that showed that Trump would be a formidable candidate. Um, but everybody focuses obsessively on that horse race number. And that I think is, is detrimental. Right. Switching
0: gears just a little bit on your website, you have a video of a, this great presentation you gave called Beyond Big versus Little Government, Why Conservatives Should Rally Behind Data-Driven Government. And i, I suggest everyone check out the whole thing, but I was hoping that you could maybe address a couple of points that are pretty clearly reflected in the title. Uh, the first is, is there really a viable alternative in your mind to the big versus little government dichotomy it seems like we've been living with for so long? And and of course, if there is, you know, what is it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that for many millennials, they're looking forward to moving past that big versus little debate. Uh, it's not that younger voters want big government or think a big government uh, is a great thing. It's that when Republicans talk about big government as an enemy for a lot of young voters, it's unclear what exactly the enemy is. I did a focus group that I I think I write about in the selfie vote where I asked a group of younger voters, you know, do you think the government spends too much money? Most of these younger voters said, yeah, I think so. Um, I'm worried about the national debt. I'm worried that we're as a generation gonna have to pay for it. Um I asked, you know, do you think taxes are too high? And they'd say, Well, yeah, I think so. Maybe not on the wealthy, but I think generally people pay too much in taxes. The government takes too much out of my paycheck. I said, Do you think then that the government is too big? And this is where nobody in the group quite understood what I asked. And one girl even said, Big government. Do you mean like the buildings are big? <laughs> it was, you know, this this concept was just totally foreign to them. And so I think instead of saying we're going to fight big government or we're going to shrink the government, I think we need to talk about are there things government does really inefficiently and ineffectively that we can scale back and hand to someone that does it more efficiently or can we do it more efficiently while keeping it within government? So I am a big advocate for looking at data as a way to make smart decisions. If a program is achieving the outcomes it's supposed to achieve, great. Let's fund it, maybe even fund it more. Let's, if something's doing good work um, and it's, it's achieving its stated goals and those goals are important to society, then good. But if we have a program where we continue to sink money into it over and over and over again and it's not actually doing any good, it's just the sort of thing that nobody wants to cut because you get called, oh, you're so mean for wanting to cut that program. That's so mean that you want to do that. Um, I think we need to let data drive some of these decisions about what works and what doesn't. And so conservatives are always talking about how, you know, the way that the private sector does things is so great and we need to do more of that in government. Well, the private sector makes a lot of decisions based on data, what's working what's do- and what doesn't. And you can only do that in government if you have good data about the outcomes that you're generating uh, in order to know are you getting good bang for your buck.
0: So, so you think that, the, at least to this point, that government hasn't invested enough resources in monitoring outcomes and evaluating outcomes, and they need to devote more attention to that so that they can have better data to kind of get a sense of what's working and what's not?
1: Uh, I think so. I mean, I, th- I think there are it, – it's not just a matter of, of data as well. I mean, I think it's also just technological advancement. Um, An example I use in that talk is that there is a cave in Pennsylvania that stores paper records about veterans' retirement information and benefits. Um, There's just been this opposition to digitizing any of this stuff. And in many cases, opposition to, say, upgrading technology is not being led by Republicans. It's being led by entrenched bureaucrats often folks who are on the left, public sector employee unions and things like that, that don't want to change the way they're doing things. Um, And that if there was more data about what's working and what's not, that would be a level of accountability that I think, frankly, makes them uncomfortable. Um, This is where I'm putting on a little more of my right of center hat here. But I, I think when you look at the opponents of some of this sort of stuff, it's not necessarily always Republicans or not even primarily Republicans, that it's oftentimes, I think, bureaucracies and unions that aren't necessarily comfortable with where more data and accountability would lead. Um, At the same time, though, it does concern me that you have some Republicans that are, are working to scale back things like what the census can do um, or the American Community Survey, a really important tool that frankly helps the private sector make important decisions about what it does, Uh, that there are lots of ways that we collect data on how America's doing um, that I would hate to see scaled back and would hope that Republicans can see there's a great deal of value in.
0: Right. Do you think it's possible that government can be or politicians can be Too responsive to at least public opinion uh, data? I mean, is there a danger, do you think, of of some politicians doing what the people think they want, but what might not actually be in their best long-term interest or, or maybe what they'd choose if they had time to sort of carefully study issues? I mean, can we be too kind of locked into that, do you think?
1: Well, I think that this has been the challenge of representative democracy that goes long before the advent of even political polling, um, that when somebody is sent to be a representative, um, in a way that's supposed to be inserting some kind of uh, layer of judgment or a buffer, if you will, between just the raw will of the people and what actually gets done. So right now, you know, you have this you've had this debate raging about health care reform. So let's think back to 2010 when we had the Obamacare debate. There are a lot of folks who were Democrats in kind of conservative ish districts who voted for the Affordable Care Act, um, even though it was something that they were going to get yelled at in their town halls about that ultimately was very unpopular in their districts. Um, and they wound up losing their seats because of it. But their votes, uh, sort of their sacrifice, they sacrificed their seat voting for this thing that was unpopular with their voters, but now has become a little more popular. And now you've got Republicans sort of grappling with the other side of it, where well, Republicans might love to put in place a very free market oriented type healthcare system. But to do so would be very politically unpopular and very disruptive. And so if you poll tested it, it would poll test terribly, but it would be in line with their principles and it would be in line with what they think would be better long term for America. And so they've got to decide do you potentially cast a ballot that is going to make you sacri- a sacrificial lamb um, in order to vote for a bill that you think long term will be good for America? This has always been a challenge. It's not just about polls. And I think. I think that if you're using a poll to decide how you think about an issue, that's the wrong use of polling. I think our industry gets uh, you know, a lot of criticism because people think that we're there doing focus groups, telling someone, I know you believe X, but you really have to stop believing X, and you have to tell people you believe Y or else you'll never win. If that's what a, a member is doing or if that is what a pollster is doing, that's just wrong. That's not what our industry's for. What instead I think we do is we say, look, member of Congress, you believe X, Y, and Z. Your, your constituents aren't quite as crazy about X, but they're with you on Y and Z. And so really emphasize Y and Z. And then hear are the things you can say about X to persuade the most people to agree with your position. Um, that's the way I approach polling and the way that I think people who are in elected office should approach polling as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Now, uh, one of your other many other hats you wear is you are also a podcaster. Uh, You have the podcast, The Polsters. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how you got involved or why you got involved in podcasting and what your show's like.
1: Uh, Sure. So uh, podcasting has been an amazingly fun adventure. About two years ago, my friend Margie O'Mero, who is a Democratic pollster, uh, she was paired up with me at uh, NPR. We were doing the State of the Union coverage, um, and we're supposed to reflect on President Obama and uh, what he was saying, and how we thought voters would or would not interpret. Uh, his message. And so we, you know, after the show, we're walking out of NPR's bureau and it's pretty late at night. Margie goes, Hey, Kristen, I've got this idea. Let's get coffee. And so we got coffee the next week. And she said, look, I think we should do a podcast. There's no podcast out there that focuses on polling specifically. There's really no show that is a bipartisan show hosted by two women, but that's also not a A women's show. I mean, we're not going to have like a pink logo or anything like that. It's not a show about women. It just happens to have two women hosts. Are you game? And I was completely game for this idea. I thought it sounded great. So, I mean, our first episode was, I think, only 18 or 20 minutes, you know, very short, just trying to get the feel for things. I don't even think we had a name for the first couple of weeks of our show. It wasn't that we became the pollsters until a little later into the game. (laughs) Um, but eventually we kind of got into a rhythm and uh, figured out, you know, this is what our audience likes. And now I think the biggest challenge we have is that Margie and I love talking about this wonky methodological stuff. We love talking about what do declining response rates mean for our industry or what are the new advances in online polling and sampling um, but it's hard to get a broad audience when you're talking about stuff that's pretty wonky and narrow. And so we try to balance a mix of let's talk about this methodological stuff with let's talk about Trump's job approval, you know, the stuff that casual political listeners are interested in, or even stuff that has nothing to do with politics, you know, polling on uh, what people think they're going to spend on upcoming holidays, or what do, you know, people think about. Uh, various movies or pop culture franchises. So we, you know, we try to keep the show engaging for a broad group of people, but in the way that politicians have to worry about, you know, how do you satisfy your base versus how do you expand your coalition? We also want to make sure that we're satisfying our base by talking enough about methodology as well.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, and for everyone, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. I think it's I think it's a great podcast. It's on it's on my list. And uh, I really appreciate the the work that you're doing on the show. Uh, I know we're running, getting a little close to our time limit, so I have one final question uh, for you. Aside from your book and your podcast and, and of course, your, your commentary, all of which I encourage people to check out, uh, what sort of resources, whether they be news sites, books, documentaries, other podcasts, that sort of thing, what would you recommend to listeners who want to get a deeper understanding of, of polling politics, that sort of thing?
1: Well, I, I would hope that anyone who listens to this, if you're looking for a new podcast to add to your your list, uh, please add the pollsters. We'd love to add you to our audience. Definitely. Um, I have also become a big fan of uh, a podcast that has nothing to do with any of those topics, but it's uh, called The Substandard at Weekly Standard. It's sort of my brain break. Um, they are politically interested and aware, but it is not a show about politics. It's a show about the latest Star Wars movie or about uh, a new comic book or superhero franchise or, you know, uh, the end of a TV series, fun things like that. Um, I am a big fan of the folks at Huffington Post pollster. Uh, I think they do great work. Um, I think they I know that there uh, there was a lot of controversy because their election models were the ones that said Hillary Clinton had a 99 percent chance of winning. Um, and so that's been kind of a big you know, challenge. How do you how do you bounce back and and, and explain to people that what you've done to, to get it right next time? Um, but I think they've got just some really smart people over there who are committed to trying to figure it out and getting it right. And so I would encourage everybody to, to pay a lot of attention to them. And I think last but not least, Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics. Um, he's somebody who wrote a book called The Lost Majority that basically predicted the ways in which Democrats would lose the white working class and that that would be a, a big electoral downfall for them. So he's a bit of a prophet in that regard. And I think uh, checking out his work is really valuable.
0: Okay. Well, that, that's a lot, of, a lot of great stuff to check out. I really appreciate that. And so with that, we will close. Uh, Kristen Sultis, Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Of course. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any suggestions for future guests, or if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. We especially appreciate those monthly sustaining contributions through Patreon. They really do help out a lot. If you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you join us.